Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the highest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then, should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, and gentles all, the flat unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object, can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooded O the casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us ciphers to this great accompt on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies whose high upreared and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace, out our imperfections with your thoughts, into a thousand parts divide on man and make imaginary puissance. Think, when we talk of horses, that you see them printing their proud hoofs at the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply. Admit me, chorus, to this history, who, podcast-like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge, our podcast. <laughs> did, did I make any <laughs> errors? Didn't that bit. No, no, I did. I actually error. like it. I like it. One error. That's fine. Here we are. We have arrived at this week's play, which is what, Wolf? Henry V. Excellent. Fantastic. So, Henry V. And we've chosen, or I have chosen, uh, Henry V, the Kenneth Branagh version. What year was this made, David? Uh, that's a really good question. Thanks for asking. 1989, I believe. No, very good. You've done your homework. Um, so, I say Kenneth Branagh. I must stop. That's a terrible habit. Kenneth Branagh. All right. Or at least clarify that you do know his real yes, name, indeed. even if you then continue to change it. Indeed. Uh, speak like an ass. Um, so, why am I doing this? Ask me why I'm doing this. David, I've been wondering, why are you doing this? Because <laughs> we have to do that at the beginning and we never forget to ask. So, I'm doing it because it's almost, or not very far away, St George's Day. And I Wait, thought, but when this comes we, out, we, don't you mean, today is St ah, George's Day? Good point. All right. Because today is St George's Day. It would be so much better if we thought of that before. So, and I thought, you know, we should do something for St George's Day. It's our national day. And, you know, I don't like the fact that our national flag is appropriated by lots of horrible far-right people. So I thought we should celebrate our flag and celebrate something which is reasonably patriotic. But you know what somebody's going to say, don't you? They're going to say, why is Henry it the... on St. Crispin's Day? Oh, I see. That's what they're going to say, aren't they? Because I... people are clever. When, when is this? When is St. Crispin's yeah, Day? Yeah, when is it? No idea. I know. Oh, I must know when Agincourt is. It's sort of October time, isn't it? Because it happens quite late in the season because they don't get over until later. Than... Anyway, so that's what I'm doing. I'm doing it for St. George's Day, okay? My impression is very strongly that Shakespeare sees him as a very patriotic figure and that Henry V is a patriotic play. 
Whether that's true or not, we will find out. Keep listening to find Keep out Keep listening more. to History and Technicolor. So what about you? Do you like the play? And did you know the play beforehand? I've seen this version of the film before. Okay. That's really my only interaction with the play. So I will admit that I'm not that familiar with it. Okay. But I'm relatively familiar with Branagh's Shakespeare adaptations. Right. And okay. I will admit that I'm... Not that familiar with the histories, okay. much more familiar with the tragedies and then the comedies, cool. some of the romances. So this is an interesting right. investigation for me. Foray for you. So I can then ask you whether you like Shakespeare or not, although I'm guessing from what you said that you do. But He can be boring. This should just up front, <laughs> let's just be honest. Right. You say can be boring. Can be boring can at be. times. Even in at times. Even in the good plays, there are sections that I really don't like. And I think that's just, so much has changed over time. There are sections of it which are designed for certain parts of the audience that just don't appeal as much these days. Or there'll be comedic interludes during a more serious production, and I I don't care as much for the deviations. But on the whole, we can't really really put the man down too much. No one puts Shakespeare in a corner. (laughs) Is that what people do with other people? I am slightly worried by my response to Shakespeare, and I may have to, you know, the Jew and Ash Twigs may need to be deployed for a second time, as it was in Master and Commander uh, for liking the British Navy. So I'm slightly worried about my transition from thrusting young... Thrusting young... Why were you all so thrusting? (laughs) Thrusting young buck to, uh, you know, old, broken-down basket case. Because, you know, when you're young, you're not allowed... You don't like Shakespeare, do you? Apart from Millie, nobody likes Shakespeare when they're under the age of 95, do they? You just think, oh, well, what do I have to do this? Let me get outside. I, gr- I, grew, to, I grew to like Shakespeare quite a lot in but you're during A-levels. Old, it's got to be said. Yeah, but during my A-levels. <laughs> so when I was like 17, 18, yeah. that was when I started to appreciate Shakespeare. 17, 18. That was when, when I st- maturity hit. Yeah, that was when I started studying. I didn't I didn't like Twelfth Night when I was younger. Hmm. I, I didn't really like Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth. But as I started to get into studying Hamlet, etc., right. it was... I found it more interesting. I found it more interesting. Okay, so you acquired maturity earlier than I did is the other way of looking at it. Because, I mean, I've always despised and hated Shakespeare and uh, resented him, actually. But I have now found myself that actually I quite like both the histories and the tragedies, which is an outrage. Um, the thing I can't stand up is he has a tin ear for comedy. Or clearly, Shakespeare has no idea about comedy and he's rubbish at it. And anybody who says opposite will never be admitted to the shed. Well, I'll be careful with my words. <laughs> no, I exaggerate. Do, do, did you, but, you know, do you not like um, It's a Night's Dream? No. God, I acted in that. Oh, my God, I wanted to open a vein. But is that Literally. because you weren't funny and the audience wasn't laughing and now you have really bad memories about this? No, it's because and you mm, turned it in the play isn't funny. Well, they, some of it's horrid as well. You know, Isn't that the one where poor old Malvolio looks like an arse all the time? That, that's Twelfth that Night. Yeah, it's Twelfth Night. So his saying. yellow stockings and his garters. Yeah, I mean, it's just horrid. Although somebody told me that it's a quite about his Shakespeare's reaction to Puritanism, which is quite interesting, actually. Uh, okay, uh, he, he puts a lot of really interesting <laughs> subtext into his plays, and I think right. okay. I think you should uh, you should read more. Okay, right. Them. I feel I've worked out my personal um, resentment now. So let, let us turn Wolf, if I may call you Wolf, to the film, nineteen eighty nine. Kenneth Branagh, the director. There is. I mean, the cast is just a bit of a tribe, isn't it? A smorgasbord. It? A smorgasbord. Did, I, did he even say that properly? <laughs> a smorgasbord of British actors. So we have Derek Jap- Jacobi. We have Brian Blessed. He's excellent. We love Brian Blessed. Alex McGowan, your favourite actor of all time, who was also Bill Baggins, whose name is? Ian Holm. Ian Holm. Rabbi Caltrine. Have you noticed that Ian Holm is in almost every movie we ever do? <laughs> what? That's weird, isn't it? You think, apart from Battle of Algiers, and actually, maybe he was even one of the fruit sellers in the Battle of Algiers. Because even when we did Mary Queen of Scots, we went back and watched the 1971 that's, version, Ian Holm. There he was. Yes. As Rizzio. Indeed. Christian Bale, Geraldine McEwan, who's taken a break from being uh, Marple for a while. Emma Thompson is a very... Did you say Judy Dench? I haven't said that, but it's on my list. Okay. I mean, could could I get to the end of my sentence? Is that right? Keep reading. Judy Dench. She managed to do a cameo without winning an Oscar. What was that? That outrageous Shakespearean love thing where she won an Oscar for literally turning up. Was it it, it that or... Yeah. Yeah, Shakespearean love, isn't it? Paul Schofield. Oh, he's so good. He is so good, isn't he? He's ridiculously good. So there's a load more I haven't recognised. But there is the most... Richard Briers. Richard Briers, of course, Richard Briers. You like Richard Briers, I like you? Richard Briers. Tom Good. I can't get Tom Good out of my mind. It's because my favourite Shakespeare adaptation 
at least by Kenneth Branagh, is Hamlet. And Richard Bryce is an incredible Polonius. Is he? I can't believe that. He's if very good. People think he's talking about his vegetables. No, no, he's no? he's excellent as Polonius. Okay, very good. Ian Holm, I think, was Polonius <laughs> that right? in the Mel Gibson version. <laughs> Is that right? I thought you were going to say that Ian Holm was Polonius's vegetable. There, <laughs> no, no. The, the other version I've watched is the Mel Gibson one. Right. Oh, and I've seen the Larry one. Mel Gibson did a Shakespeare. Yeah, it's um, Glenn Close's um, Gertrude right. and. Hamlet is Mel Gibson, and yeah. I'm pretty sure Ian Holm is Polonius in that right. version. So we can't get away from it. How is Mel as a as a not Hamlet? Good. Not I can't imagine it. Anyway, so the most significant name though in that entire cast list or the cast and crew list is one Phyllis Dalton. Why is that? Given that this is the second time I we've done this episode. Well, this is why I don't want you to really cheat. To know this the is answer. why I don't want to cheat. <laughs> I don't know. Tell me, David. <laughs> Phyllis Dalton is the only person who won an Oscar. She is the costume designer. It's quite interesting. By the way, everybody, this is the second time we've done this because we did it and I had the microphone on the wrong setting for three episodes, actually. So all redone. So if you feel a sense of, I don't know, I don't know, what sense would you have? A lack of thrust. Then um... Is that because you're now a basket case and not a thrusting young buck? <laughs> Indeed. A thrusting, busting young thruck. Now, do I need to tell you the plot? Do I actually need to? Yes, I'll take yes. it. There's this bloke, right? All right? This bloke conquers France. And he has a bad haircut. Has a really bad haircut, but not as bad as his brother's. Conquers the heart of a princess. Then the muse reminders that everything's going to turn to poo afterwards anyway. That's essentially it. There's a battle in the middle as well. And what, why does he go to war in okay. this version? Uh, in this version? Well, what an interesting question. So he goes to war in this question because he's tricked into being uh, into not doing something else domestically that clever people at court don't want him to and do. And he's insulted by some tennis balls. Well, he's insulted by balls, but then we're all insult- insulted by balls, aren't we? See, I still... I mean, it was the funniest bit in the play. It's the only funny bit in the play. The only bit we is enjoyed. Is it balls, my liege? Is that, that the line? Balls, my liege. That is the only bit where we had a good time. Literally. And we're simple people in Loughborough. But I mean, that's the basic thing. Sky goes and invades France because he believes in he has the right to be the king of France. And... That is a right which has been around since Edward III claimed it in the uh, marketplace in um, Ghent. And then what happens at Agincourt? And why is this renowned? You really want me to tell me the story, don't you? So, okay, there's this battle, right? So there is this, there is a battle, and traditionally the English are outnumbered by uh, 100,000 to, you know, about, well, about three three guys and a, and a bloke who brought the motor mower with him. And it is the great story of the English archer that brings down the flower of French chivalry in the mud at Agincourt. And was it the first time the archer was used in this no, u- way the, in battle? The, absolutely not. And in fact... There's quite a lot of talk we can enjoy talking about the longbow in the historical section and how accurate that is. Okay. But the longbow acquired its reputation at the Battle of the Standard in 1138 when we gave the Scots a kicking. <gasps> so often that happens. Boring, really. Um, and then, sorry, pardon me. <laughs> and then um, uh, from that time, the longbow acquires its through the Hundred Years' War, Edward III, Cressy and Poitiers, that really, that's when the longbow gets acquires its fearsome reputation. Although it acquires very small part and actually is used rather small amount in Poitiers. How much longer would you like me to go on about the longbow? Um, I could talk for three, four hours. You've already gone on too long. Okay, excellent. There are some themes. You know, I'm not quite... One of the things we'll have to sort out as we go through is whether we're talking about Shakespeare or we're talking about Didier Ken. Uh, and, of course, it'll be a bit of both. But being Shakespeare, there's rather more, rather more nuance than simply this bloke goes and, you know, wins the heart of a princess and of, uh, and of France. Um... There's a, there's a bunch of themes. So there's, you know, to be a king, you need to be brutal. There's that theme that runs through it very strongly. There's a theme about are all the posh guys full of BS and the rest of us are just cannon fodder, you know, uh, lions led by donkeys kind of theme. And there is the good old traditional, honest to goodness, no poo, war as hell theme, uh, which comes out looting of the prisoners, you know, uh, killing of the baggage train, which we'll come to. It's one of the hi- historical controversies. Okie dokes. So that is the story. Sounds wonderful. Do you feel you know the story now? Yes. Good. That's very good. Arguably, I know the story better now than when I watched it. Okay. So, the film as a film. Had you seen this film before? No. I'd managed to avoid it. So you've never seen this I had never seen this film before. No, I don't think I had. I'd seen Didier Larry, I think. What about you? You hadn't seen it before. No, I had seen this before. Oh, you had seen this before. And have you seen uh, Larry? No, but I watched... 
uh, Laurence Olivier's Hamlet and okay. was not too keen. Right. So I had kind of shied away from it a bit. And you made me watch a clip because I know I've watched it in the, my past, but my memory of the film in the past of Laurence Olivier's version is of a black and white film. I thought it was black and white as well. So it's a bit weird that so the I clip you showed was in colour. Yeah, I know. Right, so, the film and how good it is. So I came to it, I must admit, feeling grumpy. There's no other word for it. Grumpy, a little bit negative. Mm, you know, I wish I'd had a pint of beer with me when I was. Although you did film. suggest it, David. I so did suggest it. I'd like to formally You can only be so grumpy. Indeed. Actually, I was supposed to ask you first, really, whether you liked it or not. But no, I, no, go ahead. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was absolutely great. One of the things about Shakespeare, obviously, which is irritating, is the language. Because, uh, you know, you think, well, no, why is he saying that? Why doesn't he just say what he means rather than all this flowery gibberish? And uh, the language didn't get in the way at all. They did it really well. And you almost didn't notice that it was incomprehensible gibberish, which is great. You know, uh, really impressive. And William, I hope, should be duly grateful. I'm sure he's very pleased in his grave that you think <laughs> that he didn't write total incomprehensible gibberish. I think he's delighted. Um... Before I go on, though, what did you think about the movie? Did you enjoy it? Just generally speaking, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. It's, it took a little bit longer for me to get into it, maybe because I've already seen it and I'm not that familiar with the play. So I had to get back through the language again. There's mm. a, a lot barrier at first. And I had to try and figure out what was going on. Right. I was a little bit confused by some of the plots happening right at the beginning. Yes. With those people who were conspiring. Bit, I think, actually. Worst bit. It's a funny place to start. You have that really good introduction from, what's his name, the muse, not the muse, the chorus. Yes. And then you get these old blokes worrying about stuff, which is, you know. I wasn't that fond of Henry in the early part of his character development right. when he's deciding to go off to war, but I grew to like him as the play gave him his character right. arc. And then the more I grew to like Henry, the more I grew to like the play. Interesting. Right, so you're quite tied to liking this character of the king. It's interesting, because yes, I don't think I have an opinion about whether I like him or not. He's a king. You're not I, supposed I, to like kings. But what I mean is, once I grew to understand his character, yeah. the more that he was developed, the more that he revealed complexities, right. the more that I could understand what he was going through, then yeah. I just the more interesting I found it. And that is quite interesting, because I've always seen, because of my uh, you know mental incompetence, I've never been able to really see Shakespeare characters as real people. Um, and actually, Henry does become a real person, and even some of the, you know, the the plebs become real characters, and they normally never do. You know, normally just say, "Why are you doing inflicting this on me?" And actually, the way Branagh plays those characters, I think, is really interesting. Actually, it's probably the least effective part of the film, but I think it's the least effective part of the play. But what he does is he tries to take the comedy out and make it functional. Or this is what how it seemed to me that. So what you get is these pe real people interacting and their their tone of voice is different and the kind of language they're speaking is different because they're you know, different kind of people. Um, but he doesn't try to make it funny because we know it isn't funny. So um, actually it worked okay and I felt I had some connection with those characters. I, those are the bits I don't like um, yeah. because they happen quite early on. So you know you get that first scene with Henry and then it cuts to Bardock and everybody yeah. in the in the pub. I'm not engaged at that point. And right. they continue to keep me disengaged. Right. And because it's not funny, I'm not laughing. And then because it doesn't quite work being serious, I'm just a bit... Right, disengaged from the whole thing. Yeah. Having said that, when we come to the seminal bit, you know, the really the big bit where um, he kills Bardolf, uh, that for me works better because he's not been a, a comic character before. Whereas when I was reading the play, I thought, oh, thank God they got rid of that bloke. Because he was just a comic character, wasn't funny, and therefore, you know, you're pleased to get rid of it. One of the things they do in this, which I think is really good, is although the play is apparently quite complete, you know, they cover most of it, they also bring some stuff in from Henry IV Part Two, which allows you to understand what the relationship is between Henry V and these guys, and makes it therefore complete of itself, which I think was a really good idea, actually. And you could see him worrying, or I can imagine him worrying about all the purists will say, what have you done this for? This wasn't in the play. You've ruined it, Shakespeare. You know, he doesn't worry about that. He says, look, I'm creating this thing, which is a film, happens to be based on this rather well-known play, but it's also got to work as a film. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think just to clarify, because I didn't know this until more recently, Henry and a bunch of the other supporting characters all exist in Henry the Fourth Part Two. Yeah. And they've been, there's a larger story that covers multiple plays. And we see them all interacting previously. 
But if you just watched Henry V on its own, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's absolutely genius to break the the boundaries of the text. Yeah. And give us these flashbacks to a previous work which never exists. Yeah. At least in a film version, that is. Yeah. I, I think it's wonderful. I, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. It leads us on to how Branagh chooses to approach the text in general. Mm. He's a little bit more willing to break the rules, so to speak, and alter perceptions and try and do something new mm. with this material. And I think that's why we get a really good film. But my understanding is actually that he's more faithful to the text than was Laurence Olivier. The actual fact, Laurence cuts out quite a lot of stuff. I think you told me this, actually, because... He wants to make it more patriotic, more outwardly patriotic, because he's done in 1944, so for obvious reasons. And therefore, he plays around with the text rather more. And my understanding was that uh, Ken doesn't really mess that much with the text, apart from this sort of flashback. No, but uh, I think my point is about how he chooses to approach it as a film. Yes. His, his use of direction and the camera work and how he is incorporating that into his structuring of the play mm -hmm. is what makes it more interesting, progressive, and modern than other versions. Right. So you are correct, and I'll, I might as well tell this bit mm. now. So obviously Olivier's Henry V was funded by Churchill's government and dedicated to the RAF pilots. It was obviously made during mm -hmm. World War II, and it was propaganda to inspire the people. So they could see the parallels between the battle they were about to fight and Agincourt, where they're completely outnumbered and they're against all the odds. Mm. So how do they inspire all the people to let them know that they can achieve this and they can go on to win? So they removed parts of the play that wouldn't highlight their purpose, that would go against their vision of Henry V. Mm. They essentially needed to create or solidify a cult of personality, mm. make him a nationalistic figure, uh, a hero where there's no question of otherwise. Yeah. So they remove all those bits in the play which Branner keeps mm. and a few that Branner doesn't keep as well, which would show a more balanced or even counter opinion of Henry and his act. Yeah. So, so there's more messing about, basically. Yeah, so one thing yeah. was they made the French more vain and incompetent, right. deliberately. So they made the yeah. French much worse at what they were doing to counter Henry, so that he's more right. clearly a sort of a hero. Could you make the French more incompetent? That, I'm just, <laughs> just a joke. That is literally just a joke in the style of Shakespeare. You know, I love but, the French words, so they made they made the French much more incompetent. They made Henry more competent, and they also gave him less of a character arc from my readings. And they made him the heroic national figure that he was at the very beginning of the play, all the way through to the end. Whereas in Branagh's version, and probably in the text as well, Henry has to overcome issues of his place in the country, his guilt over his ancestors and everything they've done, mm. how he came to have the throne with his father being a usurper. Mm. Yes. Interesting. He has to weigh up his conscience about how he interacts with his men and how he leads them into this war where he doesn't know they're going to win. Obviously, in the other version, Henry is 100% certain yes. he's going to win. Yes. He's like, oh, so what? There's 100,000 yeah. more of them. Yeah, Come at me. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> and he's just going to... Yeah, we'll gonna, have him. We yeah. can have him. Yeah, give me another point. Okay, great. Okay. And I, I, certainly, I mean, your points about how it works for film is interesting because, yes, I mean, you know better than I, but it does sound very consciously as though he's making a proper film, not, it's not just a film of a play. Well, so when we open, like we did in this podcast, yeah. Derek Jacobi yes. is walking behind the scenes of a movie set, which is fascinating. It works Instantly really well, engaged it? me. Yeah. So he's walking past all the lighting rigs, all the dollies. And he's making his way through, and then they open the doors as he lets you into the play. Yeah. And then we get that wonderful um, silhouette of Henry as he appears between the two doors, lit from behind. This kind of majestic figure silhouetted. Yeah. And you know that what you're watching is not a standard play filmed from, you know, like yeah. two cameras yeah. on a little stage and they're just released as a, as a film. This is being staged specifically for medium of cinema yeah and thus is going to have complex parts all moving around that, that try and drag sections of the play out yeah. and blow them up into this yeah very good this in fact when he opens the the doors into the play that of course is very like joseph and his technical dream code isn't it yes you know where M maria friedman opens the door and you've got donny i mean that's fantastic isn't it anyway um moving on we watched that last night didn't he poor thing uh so 
Totally agree. It's very cinematic. There's a certain amount of grit in the film as well, which I thought was great. You know, um, I expected this kind of patriotic, you know, flim flam. And I didn't get that. Um, you see Henry V being manipulated into war at the beginning, as we've mentioned, um, though it's a bit garbled, I must admit. And I only realised what they were doing when I read it up afterwards. You get quite a lot of the war as hell stuff. The bit about Henry and his chumps is quite well done, as we, well, I felt it was, it was better done. Uh, in the middle, there's a bit just for the battle where Michael Williams is uh, there, another one, another actor. Um, for a second, I thought you meant Kenneth Williams. Kenneth did here. Er, Henry. No. Must do. We're going to have to do Cleopatra, aren't we? Oh, that's Sid James, but also Kenneth. Infamy, infamy. They've all got it infamy. One of the funniest lines. We could do, yes. Anyway. Uh, is that more? I'm sorry, I've thrown it off. It's completely thrown me off. So yeah, there's this bit with Michael Williams and he's playing a, an ordinary soldier and he actually, he genuinely communicates real anger about the posh guys who won't risk everything will end up walking away being fine while they all get killed. That That is is quite bitter. It's quite well done. The bit where Richard Bryce is strung up as Bardolph, so I think is really well done. It's actually quite affecting and you think... There is a genuine break with the past, and it, you you see Branagh reflecting what this means to him. Although he does slightly look like a member of Spinal Tap dressed as a witch. That's always a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what I mean, though, don't you? That's absolutely true. So, um, but yes, it actually makes sense. The thing there is less grit in the film, I felt, than the play. Funnily enough, which is quite uh, an eye opener for me, coming back and looking at the play again after A level, and we should come to that. I was going to ask Christian about the our Celtic neighbours. How do you think they were dealt with in the play? Who are our Celtic neighbours? <laughs> the Welsh. So I'm quite interested. Are the Welsh in the play? Yeah, of course they There's a, uh, a Welsh captain called Flewellen, predictably, possibly. You know. <laughs> yes, it's Ian Holm, uh, I remember now. Indeed, there you go. So yes, so I'm kind of expecting a certain amount of stereotyping from an Elizabethan play. And of course, the Welsh, as you may or may not know, claim to have invented the, the longbow. And certainly, whether they did or didn't, Welsh contingents are very important in English and Welsh armies of the time. They play a critical role in the Hundred Years' War, and they are you know always recruited first, and you always have a large Welsh archer contingent. Those are all facts that I definitely knew. <laughs> You're a liar. <laughs> no, I'm not. How dare you? <laughs> Your nose is definitely longer anyway. So, I, I mean, the reason I ask that, as I say, is I expect them to be treated poorly. In actual fact, Flewellen is a very competent captain character and there's no sign of it, which I thought was quite interesting. Is he treated fairly in the play? I think so, yeah, from what I remember, okay. which is, you know, 900 years ago. I'll, I'll admit, I didn't particularly right, yeah. think about okay. it or notice, so, so I can't throw be... throw a little bit of a curveball, this being the second time we've done it, so I thought, I'll ask you a question. Which it's it's really interesting. Thank you. You know, so basically, essentially... I'm not, I'm not <laughs> laughing at you. I genuinely think it's, it's actually interesting. Yeah, 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 okay. So you know you're watching Shakespeare, but only just, effectively. And the other thing I really liked was some of the music, amazingly enough. There's a song in it. What, what did you think of the music? I thought it was very good. What... I actually wanted to ask the listeners a question. So when we were comparing the two... You know they're not here, right? But they'll respond in the future. Oh, okay. When we watched the two versions of the St. Crispian's yeah. Day or Crispian's Day yeah. speech, the same piece of music plays over both of them because I watched them one after the other. But I don't know what piece of music it is and right. I'm wondering why it's so significant oh, that Branagh would take that piece of music from hmm. at least the Laurence Olivier version if oh, nothing else. And then use it again over the same speech. Because you asked me when we're looking at that clip that you sent me about his famous speech, you know, we few, we happy few. And um, uh, I didn't know, it didn't mean anything to me. So, yes, let's maybe you listeners can help us out. Maybe Hermione will probably. Because I thought I recognised the music when I was watching the Larry Olivier scene. Yeah. And the reason was because it's in the the Branner version as well. So when I watched that scene back consciously echoing. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. I wondered if it was a more significant song in general. The song I really enjoyed was Non Nobis Domine, which is... Classic. Classic. Hey, Non Nobis. I'm going to tell you a funny anecdote about Because I can't like songs in Latin because it's embarrassing, obviously. You know, it's it's pretentious. and it's So when Jane and I were courting all those years ago, which is, well, I don't know, 1822 or whatever it was, uh, and I'd forgotten that she was there in the car and I was listening to the Dixit Dominus, and I started singing along to the Dixit Dominus and got mocked for years. In fact, don't remind her when we go back in because <laughs> okay. if we do, you know, I'll get mocked again for years. She's forgotten about it now. But despite that scar, um, it was a great song. It's the one where he's walking through the field carrying the, the boy. 
Yes, great scene. It's a really good song. Anyway, so I thought the music was actually quite good. Um, How do you I, feel about the battle scenes? Since you've just talked about that. The battle scenes are quite interesting. Um, I thought the battle scenes were essentially rubbish. Uh, I'm being a bit, a little bit too strong. I mean, they were, they cinematically, they worked absolutely fine. Historically, I don't think they were particularly accurate. And I sort of all the bit with the bowman coming in in the middle and the sort of... But I could see the problem. You know, you're trying to make, uh, with a film, you're trying to make a battle scene. I wasn't that impressed. I think it was fine, absolutely fine. And I say I really enjoyed the film generally. But I didn't think, God, those are great battle scenes, particularly. They were fine. But do you appreciate that within the constraints of the yeah. play, that you have to have all these characters in the same place, not in different parts of the battlefield? Yeah. They have to always be talking and have the opportunity to have those discussions that we need to hear. Yeah. While still conveying a battle and making it... Yeah. It's effective. Active. I agree. It, yeah, it works. Yeah, I totally agree. It works and it's effective. It was not like the beginning of Band of Brothers, but it works and it's effective. It was, the battle scenes were more developed and bigger than I was anticipating. Yeah. And there is some dedication to essentially going off script and showing pure action for a minute or two. Yeah. Which obviously you wouldn't necessarily get in some productions. Indeed. I mean, I no, I totally agree. And it's reasonably brave with the cheese. You know, he doesn't shy away from, you know, in a, with a modern play, you might think he might shy away from doing some of the big speeches and, you know, a little bit, a little bit more, I, I don't know, uh, take the edges off it. He doesn't. He goes straight for it and it works really well. The speech, the, the famous speech, we few, we happy through you. It is that one, isn't it? We band of brothers. We brothers. That works really well, I think. I don't know. What did you think? It's very good. Yeah. Rewatching uh, it again. Yeah. It's very impressive, very emotive, yeah. inspiring. And what I noticed, so comparing this with the Larry Olivier version, this is what I said to you, in mm. the in the Lawrence Olivier version, he starts to walk amongst the men, starts to speak to them, and it's a slow pan out mm. as the music rises, rises, becoming more triumphant and inspiring, and it pans out to show all the men. Mm. In the Brunard version... <laughs> I've got you into that habit. Yeah. He he pulls you in closer and closer. Yeah. There's more close-ups. The men are around him. He is one with them. And we've seen this developing throughout, especially when he walks amongst them at night. Mm. But I really enjoyed his approach where he, he basically puts the camera right in underneath him. Yeah. So he's a little bit elevated on his slightly higher stance because he gets a little bit above them. And lets you just listen to the words and you never feel like you're yeah. outside of it or you're watching from afar you're in there with them he's speaking to you every one of you and he's making eye contact with you directly yeah. so you see all the emotion on his face which you lose in the Larry Good Olivier listeners. version I uh, know I totally agree that you don't um, you don't feel uh, the, you're not disconnected you're you involved feel, yes you are and you don't feel awkward and think oh I'm being speeched at even though you are obviously being speeched at I, and actually the other one imitate the action of a tiger fill out the wall of our English dead and all that sort of stuff that works very well too and that's very difficult, actually, that one. Because is, that the, is that the once more under the bridge? Yeah, once more under the bridge. Because that's, you know, you're in a sort of war situation and you've got to make a speech without sounding. So, hang on, could you stop shooting at me? Well, hang on, whoa, whoa, just got to make a speech. Then you start trying to kill me again? Okay. You know, you've got to try and work that speech into the action. And he does it very well. I really like that Henry is physically dirtied. Yeah. He's he's muddy. His clothes have stains on them. He's It's not all really well put together. He's down there in the action with everybody else. He's wounded. He has blood coming from mm. him. He's just a soldier fighting. So when he gives these speeches, they're a little bit more believable. And also the 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 character growth that comes through yeah. when he walks through his men that night before the battle. And when he's crying and he prays to God for guidance and repentance yeah. to kind of assuage his guilt and come to terms with who he is and how he's going to lead these men into battle... All of that happens. So by the time you get these speeches, which could be too much, you're on his side. Yes, that, I mean that's a really good point, isn't it? It the, doesn't. If, if he's false and you don't, and you think, oh, it's just a couple cut out, then the speech won't mean too it, much. It doesn't. You don't feel like he's just this ruler who yeah. you disagree with, like you say. Yeah. You, you feel like he's one of the men. Yeah. It's very, very, very good. Convincing. Totally agree. So we love the film effectively. Before we go on to the history, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, actually, I really enjoyed it too. more times passed, I've grown to. I didn't enjoy it that much when I was watching it. Hmm. But now I think back, I, I can yeah. probably really enjoy it a little bit more once I know the text better. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So as a historical record, Wolf, it's reasonably accurate to the players who said. The flashbacks are the main thing. We've talked about those. The portrayal of Henry V is interesting. We've talked about how nuanced it is, which is very good. Self-doubting, self capable, capable of doing the tough stuff, capable of viciousness, but um, you know, also human and empathetic. 
Um, judgments in, in England about Henry V have varied very widely indeed. Not about his competence. You're going to ask me a question. I was going to ask you what you think the play's resounding final impression of Henry is. I think it's the impression of a a human being, somebody who shows his humanity and is emotionally engaged uh, and yet is tough and capable of doing what a king needs to do. And for me, it presents him as doing what he needs to do rather than taking pleasure in the vicious things that he has to do, of which there is one big one. Yes, and even though it shows him doing perhaps some questionable things and even having traits of being maybe even a warmonger, as some people have suggested, sometimes... Some viewings are quite negative of him. Mm. The play does exactly what you say, yeah. and it brings it all back in to show that it's just a king doing what yeah. he has to do. I think we used to, we ought to use the word monger a good deal more, and we are pod mongers, are we not? I guess so. Yeah, we've got an iron monger and a war monger and a pod monger. Well, it, mong- it doesn't sound quite as good it as the other. Good. Should we go mong some pods? That sounds gross, doesn't it? Well, thank you, David. Continue. Continue. I just wanted to clarify what the play is saying so then you can reconcile that with what history says. So the historical record has been, at the the time, there were very few doubts, actually. Both the English and French saw him as a model monarch uh, who did what monarchs and ward leaders are supposed to do. You know, all our modern mathering. Back then, if you're a king, you're supposed to make war. You're supposed to beat the other guy up and you're supposed to win glory for your house and riches for your followers. You know, stop the messing about. Um, it's like prison rules. Attack the biggest guy in the prison. Yeah, and take him day down. Day one. Indeed. We're Become a king. Papillon. Indeed. King of the castle. Take down the biggest opponent. Indeed. Having said that, the French, of course, have a lot of lament about the, the horrors of war and the violence inflicted by the horrible English. But nowhere do they doubt the fact that here is a king doing what a king ought to do, and he's done it very, very well. Since then, of course, the story has got rather more nuanced. And one of the biggest debates is about Henry's cruelty, you know. And within the play, the thing I thought was missing from the film, but actually I remember now you say it's not, is this thing about Henry killing the prisoners, which we will come to in a moment. So... You then, in the mid-20th century, you get this fantastic historian called K.B. McFarlane, who sadly didn't write very much. And so what you get is his students, who become historians, talking about their K.B. McFarlane's influence on them, which is rather uh, fascinating. To him, Henry is the greatest man that ever ruled England, and that's a, a direct quote. Incredibly competent king, a man of vision, who did things for a purpose and a reason, and followed through. Uh, in a whole range of different areas, not just about about war. But more recently, historians have really knocked the edges of that. So, so mu- even so much as there's a pop historian called, call him a pop historian, it's a good historian, called Ian Mortimer, who writes very good books, who said, and I quote, conclusive proof that a man may be a hero and yet a monster. Nobody's taking Henry's competence away, but they are saying, actually, he does things of a viciousness that he doesn't really need to do, and he's cold. And that's the key difference with the film. A lot of the interpretations has Henry as a very cold man who doesn't doubt in the way that he does in the film. In this, he's quite emotional. So I believe when he does make the decision to kill the prisoners, which I think is shown in the film, the reason he does it is because Christian Bale's boy, the boy that he plays, has been killed. Yeah. And it's uh, an act of vengeance. Yeah. Just spurred on by disgust and sadness. Well, I'm going to argue about that. Abby. So I'm going to quote Shakespeare at you. Okay. Well, do you want to finish thoughts about yes, about Henry as a character here? Well, so all I was going to say is but... you were saying many people interpret him as being very cold. Yeah. I think this play is the opposite. Yes, I totally agree with that. That it has him very much as an emotional, empathetic character who, as you said before, he can his be calculating. Um, develops during the film, whereas. For many historians, his coldness is is one of the remarkable things about him. It's good that we've got the dog joining in. Yes. Mm. So then, oh, the only thing I'm going to <laughs> bloody dog. Bloody dog. I was going to add is yeah. When you talk about his competence, though, it's interesting that Shakespeare ends the play by telling you this is not how the situation will carry yeah, on. Yeah, but it's, but then it'll turn to poo because he dies. Oh, I see. Okay. And he dies very young in 1422, just seven years after. Agincourt and his son is Henry the Sixth is a you know probably has got a men- serious mental illness which although you know which affects him probably all the way through his life and is nine months old 
his brother and his two brothers, Bedford with the extraordinarily bad haircut and his brother Gloucester, who's quite a dude actually, they take over and they do very well until 1435. Then Henry VI comes to the throne and all turns to, you know, poo, essentially. And they get chucked out by the French. I see. At the Battle of Formigny. The history then I think is perfectly well done and I feel very scared saying that because I think, you know, everybody talks about Holland Shed and how... Uh, Shakespeare bases history in Holland Shed and the errors in Holland Shed. But so for the the lesser well informed yeah. of us, who was Holland Shed? And Holland Shed's a, um, a 16th century historian essentially, and he's building on a tradition of historical chroniclers, and he's created a history. And he's the history. key influence. He's the key from which source, Shakespeare bases Shakespeare, as I understand it. Yeah. So the other point I was going to add is at the same time as this, which I thought was interesting. There was quite a lot of popular Henry V plays being right. produced in Tudor England. Oh, right. okay. So there were three other plays, at least, circulating at this time in the late 1580s. One was titled The Famous Victories of Henry V Containing the Honourable Battle of Agincourt. They stressed the comic and romantic aspects of the story, which mm. appear in Shakespeare's version. They often begin with Henry's hectic youth and move through his kind of reformation and then end in the victorious conquests. And there are a variety of similarities such as the commoners and the king, the wooing of the prince, mm. princess, etc. He added in the scene where he walks amongst the men. Right. Shakespeare openly just put that in, not based on any yeah. research, to add to the drama of the yes. of the play. And I've got to be said, all that sort of stuff, yes, and when I say it's quite accurate, I mean, who knows about all that sort of stuff? I can just kind of take it as read that we don't know that level of detail um, and we don't know if Hollandshed wrote it, how much he knew. Because, I mean, history is differently has changed over the years. And in those days, history was as much about a story to inspire. You know, like Herodotus talks about the reason we study history is to study the works of great men and to, so that we can emulate them. It's not about the scientific method of... I mean, Thucydides introduces... Shall I stop now? No. Uh, Thucydides introduces the idea of the scientific method, but it's very much more recent thing, this idea that we ought to be searching after purely searching after truth. Uh, Thomas More would write history the, about Richard III as a way to instruct people in tyranny, not to tell you get the right things about Richard III. So they put words into people's mouths gaily, and that's perfectly accepted. I'm going to write this speech for Richard III. They're not claiming it ever happened. So, uh, you know, there's a different historical tradition around it. But that. despite all of that, you think the place... So, so you've got to take accurate. all that sort of wordery out because you know that historians are making it up. But... I mean, the reason for the war is a bit odd at the beginning. You know, it's perfectly clear that Henry believes he has a right to the to France. And he does it for economic reasons as well, obviously, and reasons of, of dynasty. But he's reviving a, a claim from that's well-standing. At Harfleur, the angry speech of Henry V saying that we'll kill everybody if you don't surrender, that is the rules of war at the time, accepted by everybody everywhere. If you surrendered, that's fine, you were able to walk away. If you did not surrender, you would be submitted to three days of sack. And there were no rules within those three days. If you died, you know, that was your own fault. So that's kind of realistic. It is interesting, though, that if you're writing a patriotic play, yeah, because I get the impression that Larry Olivier removes that speech. Ah, okay. I, I just get the impression that it's still... Yes. If you're trying to paint an absolutely perfect... Absolutely. Well, image. this is an argument that recurs all the way through tediously actually through oops sorry no 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 I don't mean about this I mean tediously generally you know on the web on the net on all the rest of it saying oh wasn't X terrible wasn't it horrible that they killed all these people you know the the, uh, the past is a foreign country they do things differently there let's not bicker about who killed who <laughs> it is who killed who <laughs> that is a Monty Python sketch isn't it yes is that, what is which sketch is that it's from Holy Grail is it <laughs> Excellent. I came across the uh, lick, rule, clean with tongue thing. You remember that one? <laughs> oh, you should say that again. That's a great sketch. Anyway, so uh, my point, yes, yeah, so that's me whining slightly about, you know, people putting foreign, modern, modern values on... We can't imagine what it was like to live then. Well, they had a different set yeah. of values they, which they lived to. And our values, you know, will no doubt be criticised in the future. Uh, you know, like destroying the planet, for example. You know, a little thing. Okay, so uh, the French were overconfident. Uh, Their numbers are probably overstated. There's a very, uh, there's an excellent modern historian called Anne Curry, who's sort of the guru of the Battle of Agincourt now, and she reckons that the French probably had a third extra. So that's a very different from a hundred thousand plays. You know, two men, a dog, and um, his cousin who once thought they'd seen a 
an hour. The battle is a mess, I'm sorry. I mean, it's not, we discussed that it's not a mess in the sense it's perfectly cinematic. But the Battle of Agincourt is a th- is theatre, it's pure theatre. And it's a bit frustrating that it managed to do that. I suppose it's because it was a play. So, you know, they arrive there, they're lined up, they're in this narrow channel between two woods. The French are over there, over the ploughed fields. The English have to get into charge of them because if they don't, they're going to get they're going to get murdered by all these these French knights, really heavily armoured, best knights in Europe. So they have to get into charge of them so that they can mow them down, um, fighting on foot with the, in the English method. So they go, they can't get into them. They, so they go forward, and that's the local bloke actually, William Camois, who comes from Stonepot, raises a white stick and he throws it in the air and he roars strike, and they go forward and they they start. They get forward, so they get within arrow range, and eventually the French are goaded, and they start charging over the muddy fields to die. They're killed by men, and that's a good thing about this play, actually. You see the fighting on foot. It's not all this arrow stuff, um, because in actual fact, it's hand-to-hand fighting that, in the end, is what makes the difference. That's how the battle is fought. There's a lot of arrows going on, but they don't have that much effect. It's not like Cressy. Anyway, so... It's all just a bit of a mess, but probably for the reasons you're saying. They've they've tried to put the bowmen in by having them there, and they're not in the play, really. Um, I think ultimately... But somewhere somebody needs to make a great movie about uh, a battle, which is pure. But then I think that film is not going to be a Shakespeare production. So ultimately, when we come down to all of this, Branagh has to be faithful, first and foremost, to the play. Yeah. And then secondly, to history itself. Yeah, and try and melt you. And that's, I think, classically what's happened in that scene. I think you're absolutely right. Um, have you been to the battlefield? No, I haven't actually, but it's just a field, I think. I see. Well, they've got, I mean, they've got a wizard centre there now. And the French, amazingly, are much better than us at celebrating things that they got got kicking. But So, there's that. And there's some really nice touches. So the feeling that the Lancastrian kings have about legitimacy, which you mentioned, actually, is very realistic. Because, of course, they, you know, they were absolutely really worried about the fact they were usurpers and they had the blood of Richard II on their hands. The bit we were talking about, the killing of the prisoners. So here we go. In the play, it says, the French have reinforced their scattered men. Then every soldier kill his prisoners. Give the word through. That's what it says in the play. So simple, quick, simple, quick. Um, Pull the plaster off. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. Ow, ooh. He kills the prisoners. It's always been a big controversy about is this an act of you know vicious cruelness? And Anne Curry's view is that what happens is so I know I'm getting a bit boring now, but I've only got another two hours to go on Agincourt. Okay, what happens is you have these multiple charges by the French. They reform, they charge, ah, bad blood, mud, arrows. Then it's like I'm there. Ah, and then back they go, and then forward come the ah. archers. Get, get the villains, and they go out and they knife fallen knights through their visor or through their neck, under the armpit, under the armpit. That's a good one in the groin, in the groin. Weak Thank spots. you. Can we stop now? And <laughs> some of these knights actually died in the mud from drowning because they couldn't get out of the mud. It was so thick and gloopy, and they clacked all the arrows and they scurry back like rabbits to the English lines. And forward come the French again, bad mud, blood, and all the rest of it. The story is, according to Anne Curry, that it looks like the French have been beaten. Everybody goes forward, so the English army essentially disintegrates into bunches of men picking up stuff, you know, trying to kill themselves, whatever. And then it looks as though the French are reforming. And at that point, it is that Henry says, kill the prisoners, because he thinks he's in trouble. Um, the French also have also already killed the baggage, as you see in the film. By, they circle around the back. A contingent comes around, circles around the back. The idea is they're going to get Henry in the rear, as it were. But they think, oh, we've got this nice baggage train. We'll kill all those boys instead and steal all their money. So they do that. So that is a dishonourable um, and unmilitary act. And therefore, that creates a lot of fear. I think that's why you see it in the play quite a lot. It's kind of a justification as well. So, it, it represents it quite accurately. You know, the French have reinforced their scattered men, kill the prisoners. Very much in line what Anne was saying. Okay, I think that that is it, really. You know, it's is it okay. an anti-war play, and is it an anti-war film? I don't think it's an anti-war play or film, personally. What do you think? I think that the film, at least, because I can't truly really comment on the play, has anti-war discussions. I think it's got a war as hell bit in it. I don't think it's anti-war. I mean, it seems to me to be a thing of war as in its place here. I guess, but does it not feel like when they open with the beginning and there's this suggestion that maybe Henry is lured into a war that he shouldn't be going to, mm. 
tricked by people within his own council. Yeah. It slightly undermines his heroic... It does, yeah. It makes it very political. It is a very interesting story. It means that, it means that he's tricked into going yeah. to war, and then because he's made that blunder, he then has to save the day at the end. Or it kind of... Um, what's the word? It undermines the legitimacy of the war. Yeah. That's what it does. Um, I don't think it has any impact on Henry as a character, but it undermines the legitimacy of the war. It's not a sort of patriotic thing of saying, hey, you know, the French have stolen, that, stolen our monarchy, which is rightly ours, therefore we're quite right to go over. There's no bellum justum there, is there? I, I think the main thing is, although, yes, I agree, it's not particularly anti-war, I also don't think it's so it, it, sickeningly... Yeah, it's not vain, absolutely. ...inspiring that I leave this thinking, oh, yeah. the monarchy's great, yay, yeah. war's Ooh, great. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's... That's what impressed me more, as I think I said at the beginning, that's what impressed me quite a lot. I was kind of expecting that and didn't get that. I got quite a nuanced view with a quite a deal of the war is hell and, you know, the posh guys betray the little guys. I thought it was quite a balanced approach yeah. to all areas. Okay. So, anything else to say about it or have we come to the, to the marking? And the marking shall be now. Marking? Three dash up mark. So with the film, I was I was torn between a seven and an eight, only because I was a little bit bored in the early parts of the right. of the play. But I think its approach to the subject matter and how it adapted it is very good. Right. What would you say? I'm mean, for an eight. Okay, I can I'm really try it. Actually. Yeah, I can I can come in at yeah. an eight. But I do believe that his version of Hamlet is significantly better. Okay, fine. Even that's got Richard Bryan, isn't it? Yes, because Richard Bryan is great. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, okay, I'll watch it. Kate Winslet's Ophelia. Is that right? She's a what? Is Ophelia? <laughs> that was good though, wasn't it? No, okay. Uh, I'll watch. Derek Jacobi is Claudius. Oh, don't, if you if I told me that Derek Jacobi, can we do I Claudius? We can think about I it. I mean, it's a TV show, obviously, but I love that. Anyway, uh, so eight. And accuracy, what would you say? Because I go with you on this. I think I've got to go a bit lower than eight, haven't I? Oh, Hermione's going to kill me. I'm going to go. I'm going to go for a seven. Maybe I should go for six. I'm going to go for a six. I'm going to go for a six because it's got a whole load of stuff in it which is, you know, demonstrably unprovable about all the chapters. Also, it's not attempting to be historically accurate. It's not attempting to be a record of events. It's not the Battle of Algiers, no. So, six. Okay. And I actually don't think that's necessarily a fault with it at all no, because... No. Shakespeare, it's you're all right, okay? We don't think it's a fault. It's probably the best Shakespeare could do with the information they had yeah, well at done. the time. Well done, William. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Not total gibberish, William. Good work. <laughs> all right, good work, William. I think that's an excellent conclusion to our play. Good work, William. Fine. Okay, but now what we can do, which we haven't been able to do because we messed up, we've had to do it again. We can do Woody's Roundup. We can do Woody's Roundup to Das Das Boot. Das Boot. Das Boot. Some other, quite a few other people remembered when the when the boat comes in. Yes, somebody my even as who well. Geordie even said, oh, did she? Even said that my Geordie accent wasn't too bad, which is just being kind, obviously, because it was obviously rubbish. So, we had quite a lot of feedback. Maybe I should do it in a more structured way, but we had a lot of love it's. So, I did a little chart here, which I do every time. I must reveal to everybody sometime about what we scored and what everybody said. So, uh, we had 93 people who loved it, which is. Percentage wise, it's got to be the most. 73% of the people who oh, responded no. who had seen it, which is great. So, people love the film, and that's pretty high, actually. That's beaten by the Battle of Algiers and the Lion in Winter, but, you know, pretty much, apart from that, pretty much at the top. A little bit below Manus King George too, and almost nobody hated it. So tiny percentage hated it, and eight of you put it as one of my top ten historical movies, which is quite good. Although seventy-five people said Lawrence of Arabia was their, it was one of their greatest top ten movies, which is by far the biggest. I've um, actually had quite a lot of grief for how much <laughs> I talked about Crimson Tide and how much I complained you did about get quite a lot of grief. You want to, you, the Hunt for the Red October. Would you like to apologise for that? To, multiple uh, people messaged me like, I oh, Crimson Tide is a perfect movie, eh? <laughs> is that right? you got a, a lot of yeah, uh, personal I, grief. I, so I do think I have to admit that I was slightly hyperbolic and it's clearly not a perfect movie. I just really like Crimson Tide. So it was James Rowling that um, gave you a bit of grief about The Hunt for Red October because James really liked The Hunt for Red, Red October is my impression I got and you slagged it essentially, didn't you? No, I think I was maybe just a little bit too casually dismissive because I really wanted to talk about right. Crimson Tide. Quite a lot of people talked about the TV show. So Stuart talked about how great that is. Because it's a new TV show, right? They've got new, there's a new version yes. as well. And of course, the original one was a TV show. In fact, the one I think I saw originally was the TV one. 
Lots of people like the depiction of living in a submarine. Yeah, indeed. So a couple of people said they worked on it. Somebody said they worked on a sub base. Lynn said she worked on a sub base and really enjoyed that. Alan said thanks to, for mentioning him, which is fine. He's given me the five quid. Alan is... Oh. Hey, when do I get my <laughs> Yeah, you don't get anything. Alan is also, of course, called Hermione, who um, actually made, I thought, quite a good point, which was that isn't the end a little bit mawkish, effectively? You know, when everybody dies and the boat sinks... He's got a it's point. just a little bit too much. It's a little bit too much. It's a little bit lazy, isn't it? That okay. Although he's trying to do the campaign, the whole war in a campaign thing is one of the things, I guess. But I guess. But then I the other thing is, one. we were talking about how it makes you feel for Germans, which as British yes. people is obviously not necessarily our inherent go-to response when we're yeah. watching a World War Two movie because of how generally it's all portrayed. Yeah. So I do think maybe it has an impact for the rest of the world. That may be different from us. That's probably true. And somebody did also mention there, Fat Jeff said that it must be watched in German with English subtitles to get the full impact. So maybe we ought to do that. We did do that, didn't we? Yeah. I watched it with English subtitles. I, I'd never watch it in English. Uh, Ian said Jürgen Proschnell FTW. Yall. What does that mean, David? I think it means for the win. Yes. Yes. Woo, go me. So young and modern. I'm so young and modern. Uh, Wes, you know, just enthused us about the fact that it's a classic submarine movie. Absolutely agree. We just love it. Uh, and Wes spent six years upon inside a nuclear fast attack boat. Apparently made lots of jokes about sub movies, but not about this one, which is, you know, it's a bit of a compliment, isn't it? So this one clearly gets it right. Makes sense. Somebody knows what they're talking about, which is great. So lots of other comments, which is really good. It, um, Melanie, actually somebody was quite rude, I thought, Wolf. About? Jen. Oh, yes, about one of your lines. Apparently you said that its length doesn't put me off at all. I'm and just going to leave. I, I just, stand by that. <laughs> it's going to leave. That where it is. I don't think Jen meant that. Sanaya talked about the um, the leaky toilets. Apparently there is a sub, you know, we talked about toilets quite a lot. Yes. That probably more than we should have done. Apparently there is a sub which got sunk because its toilet leaked. It's like that like aeroplane that had to return back to the airport that left from because the toilets were all blocked up. Is that right? Hmm. Is it like that? Yeah. I suppose a little bit. And then also the, all, with Melanie's, Melanie got involved about the conversation about the, how much we talked about bottoms all the time. And so I was able to show her picture of men standing in Parliament with their bottoms towards... Uh, great stuff. Uh, great. And we had a very nice review that talks about how hilarious our conversation was about fig leaves. <laughs> That's right, yes. It's just slightly embarrassing. Anyway, so everybody had a good time, was had by all, effectively. Stuart said, told us that we might need to watch the, watch the director's cut, so maybe we need to do that. But anyway, so, um, yeah, everybody loved it, and uh, we had a nice time, so that's good. So should we stop now? Yes. Is that be a good idea? We've scored the movie. Everybody's had a good time. The baggage train, everybody, unfortunately, had been killed. Sorry about that. But, you know... Fortunes of War, all that sort of thing. Would you like to read this final? Okay. Let's, do you think? Do you think we should just to let's finish it do it, Let's read it. Go on then. So, everybody, we're finishing with, with chorus again as we started. Thus far, with rough and all unable pen, our bending author has pursued the story in little room confining mighty men, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Small time, but in that small most greatly lived this star of England. Fortune made his sword, by which the world's best garden he achieved, and of it left his son, Imperial Lord. Henry VI, in infant bands crowned King of France and England, did this king succeed, whose state so many had the managing that they lost France and made his England bleed, which oft our stage has shown, and for their sake in your fair minds let this acceptance take. No idea what the last two lines meant. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Great stuff. Coming. Thanks for coming. Bye. You say goodbye as well, no? Goodbye. Are you not entertained? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.